The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good evening, everyone. It's good to see you all here, and a privilege for me to be here to address you this evening. Uh, We're here, though, this evening because we are concerned, as Christians, about the future. We are concerned about God's purposes, and we're concerned about our nation, concerned about our province, our towns, our communities. And people who are concerned about the future must always be interested in the past. In fact, my experience is that uh, when you find people who are interested in the past, in history, they're usually people who have a keen interest in the future. I want to begin this evening by uh, reading a few verses from a psalm that will be very familiar to you as uh, Canadian Christians, Psalm 72. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14 as we consider the theme of building a vision for engagement in the public sphere. Psalm 72, and I'm going to read verse 1 through 14. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. We'll leave it there. It's a messianic psalm, of course, about uh, Christ the king and what is going to happen in the time of the appearing and ruling of the Lord Jesus Christ, which of course began at his first advent. Now, uh, it's my understanding that this evening is being hosted by the Christian Heritage Party. One of the important questions we can ask ourselves on an evening like this is, uh, why is this place not full? And there's a reason for that. And I want to talk about the reason, in a sense, this evening, that this place is not full. Why is it that such a critical issue, such an important subject about the future, wherever we are and whatever setting we're in, often does not grab the Christian church today? Because we have to start there to understand how we can begin to build a vision for the future, for engaging the public sphere. 
For our Christian forebears, for the most part, the implications of the faith for life and culture were much more deeply rooted in Christian consciousness than they are today for most people. And if we take an event in the history of the Christian church like the Reformation, the great solas of the Reformation, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fidei, sola Christus, solio deo gloria, these solas meant a lot more to people than simply some formal convictions about faith, grace, and the Bible that could be abstracted from the world in some sense. That we can, as many Christians hold today, to the formal authority of the Bible, but they do not really hold to its material authority. What do I mean by that? I mean that it's all very well for evangelicals to speak about the authority of Christ and the authority of Scripture, even the infallibility or inerrancy of Scripture, and yet leave that as an abstract doctrine that is never actually applied to the material world. And sometimes we've been very good at dotting our I's and crossing our doctrinal T's while we leave God's Word unapplied. The faith of the Reformation was a theological interpretation of all of life. It wasn't just a set of doctrines for the church, for an institution. Charles Hodge, the great Princetonian scholar, said this, It is our duty, as far as lies in our power, immediately to organize human society and all its institutions and organs upon a distinctively Christian basis. Indifference or impartiality here between the law of the kingdom and the law of the world, or of its prince, the devil, is utter treason to the king of righteousness. The Bible, the great statute book of the kingdom, explicitly lays down principles when which candidly applied will regulate the action of every human being in all relations. There can be no compromise. The king said with regard to all descriptions of moral agents in all spheres of activity, he that is not with me is against me. If the national life in general is organized upon non-Christian principles, the churches which are embraced within the universal assimilating power of that nation will not long be able to preserve their integrity, end quote. Now, I hope you uh, got some of that at least. Charles Hodge, over a hundred years later, has certainly been proved right in that statement. As soon as the public institutions are organized upon non-Christian terms and principles, look what happens to the churches. Look what happens to so-called Christian education. If you've been tracking what's been happening in the TDSB just the last few weeks, or if you heard on the radio even today, confirmation that uh, if you are a man and you think you're a woman, uh, you can have your birth certificate altered and your passport changed. Or in the universities, where we've seen the, uh, and, and the schools now, where the TDSB is promoting the hiring of transgendered individuals and then the creation of bathrooms and washrooms and so forth for, well, if I could walk in and say I feel like a woman, and I can go and use the ladies' washroom. Well, those are just uh, 
the things that hit the headlines. Those, of course, are just the window dressing. Those are just the latest fruits on a very uh, long branch that connects to a very deep root of a move away from Christian principles in Canada. This hasn't just happened in the last 20 or 30 years. This has been going on for a very long time. Charles Hodge is surely right. You see, what we are facing today, the biggest challenge I want to suggest to you, brothers and sisters, is not out there. We're facing a time of the lost word within the churches. The first task of the children of the Lord Jesus and of the church of Jesus Christ is the faithful teaching and preaching and application of God's word into every area of life, beginning with ourselves and with our children. Martin Luther once said this. He said, No greater mischief can happen to a Christian people than to have God's word taken away from them or falsified so that they no longer have it pure and clear. God grant that we and our descendants be not witnesses of such a calamity. Now they realized that to remove the word of God from a people, to take it away from them, to take it away from the church, to take it away from school children, was one of the greatest, the greatest calamity that could ever befall a people. But there's no question that we as Protestant descendants of Luther, whether we are Catholic or Protestant, are witness of this calamity in our time, in our families, in our schools, in our courts, in our corridors of power, even in our churches. And so the problem for the primary challenge for the Christian Heritage Party and others who are seeking to engage the public sphere, is not primarily out there, can I suggest to you. And I say that as a pastor and as a Christian apologist who's worked in the churches across this country. The root of the challenge that we face today is actually theological, not political. And if we are going to build a vision for the future, we have to begin theologically. And much of the academic help that's on offer in the West today to address this malady, doesn't see or refuses to see, including our, many of our seminaries, that Luther's calamity is the worst kind of disaster to befall any people, and that it's upon us already. Now, commensurate with that is, of course, the social consequences. As goes the church, so goes the world. And so we see the advance of cultural decay in our time. It's reached such a point now, however, that if you read any of the contemporary cultural commentators in the secular world, you will find that there is already a realization amongst cultural and political elites in Europe and in North America that the crisis facing the West, there is a broad understanding now, if you look at many of the commentators uh, especially in Europe, recognizing, wh whether they are believers or not, many of them are not, they're humanists and secularists writing, that there is a crisis facing the West, and that it is due to an abandonment of biblical faith. One very simple example of this would be in the area of charity. Uh, I think it was last year, possibly the year before, my memory not quite accurate on this one, that uh, Canadian charities had a big conference in Ottawa because the, the 
problem facing Canadian charities today is giving. How do you motivate even the basic principle, the social issue of giving to charity without a religious foundation, or at least without a Christian religious foundation? The social decay is advancing to such a degree that Dr. Samuel Gregg, a political commentator, has noted that increasing numbers of secular commentators are recognizing the need for a decisive public return to Christian faith and its values. And they would say, like um, uh, Perra, for example, the former um, president of the Italian Senate, that if... Europe and North America are to retain their cultural identity to survive, to maintain social cohesion, to maintain even a civil order in the next 50, through the next 50 years, it must return to its Christian roots. This is non-believers saying this. Having noted that much of the church has reduced its contribution to, to, to society to the vague humanitarian platitudes of NGOs, Samuel Gregg points to a very encouraging development then. This is what he says, and I'm quoting. He says, this makes it even more ironic that increasing numbers of secular European thinkers believe Europe can only reinvigorate its distinct identity and values through re-engaging its Judeo-Christian heritage. This is certainly the conclusion of one of Germany's most prominent intellectuals, Jürgen Habermas. A self-described methodological atheist, Habermas has been insisting for some time that Europe no longer has the luxury of wallowing in historical denial. As Habermas wrote in his 2006 book, A Time of Transitions, Christianity and nothing else is the ultimate foundation of liberty, conscience, human rights, and democracy, the benchmarks of Western civilization. To this day, we have no other options. We continue to nourish ourselves from this source. Everything else is postmodern chatter, end quote. So you may think, you know, well, what is the Christian Heritage Party? We are a fringe, tiny minority on the edge of a society having minimal impact. Well, you might actually be on the front end of a bell curve. In fact, I think you are. That actually what is being steadily recognized by secular commentators is that there has to be some sort of decisive return to Christian values in the public sphere. Otherwise, we're finished. And that's true. This is a very telling statement then from a secular intellectual. And he observes then a historic and social reality that remarkably seems to elude many Christians in the West who refuse to think about or do anything about the situation that we are facing in our culture. So we have a humanistic social uh, order where... Some of its intellectual elite are slowly beginning to realize that the decline of Christianity in the West and the virtues of God's law, especially bequeathed to us by the Reformation, are leading us into inevitable social and cultural death. And that, of course, leaves us exposed to an opportunistic Islam, which is seeking the, seizing the opportunity in our time, both in Europe and in North America, to try and step in and fill the vacuum being left by Christianity. 
It's not historical accident that modern Western history's worst tyrants have vilified God's word and law and many revolutionary intellectuals that have transformed the way Western people think about themselves have utterly despised the word of God. The father of modern psychology, for example, Sigmund Freud, who deeply shaped our therapeutic culture in both psychology, entertainment, and politics, quite frankly, is just one example. Did you know that he ended his days writing a book, spitting out venom against the law of God, ejecting law and crime from the universe, and reinventing Moses as a pagan Egyptian in his book, Moses and Monotheism? When you look at uh, the 20th century's most famous tyrant, Adolf Hitler, he declared this, and I quote, History will recognize our movement as the great battle for humanity's liberation. A liberation from the curse of Mount Sinai. Now, if that quotation, and it's a longer quotation, it's a very interesting one, did not have Hitler's name attached to it, many uh, modern Canadians would totally agree with it. They wouldn't say they would simply because it says Adolf Hitler underneath, but they would agree with that statement. That we're in a battle for liberty. For them, liberty means liberty from God. The Bible says, of course, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. But liberty for the modern Western world means liberty from God and his laws. And we are like, swiftly manifesting a like hatred for the word of God in our cultural moment, we are attempting to remove reference to God, his law, his word in all public discourse. We don't want any public representations of it. We don't want MPs daring to pray in the name of Jesus. We'll, we'll find Christians who pray in public buildings and so on. The problem is we've got many texts of scripture attached to our public buildings in this country. They're pretty difficult to remove unless you're going to knock down the peace tower in Ottawa. It's been rightly said then, as goes the church, so goes the world. And our cultural crisis can be traced to the private and public loss of God's word and the severing of the connection between theology, this book, the Bible, and every area of life. And that begins right here in the Christian pulpit, not in this church, but in general. That severing of that connection begins in the church. And that's what happened in Canada. Look at the United Church of Canada today. It is the worst sink of occultism and anarchistic libertarianism or Marxism in this country. It has made itself into a neo-political institution for the furtherance of cultural Marxism and spiritism. Just in case you didn't realize that. So what are we really talking about here? Well, let me put it another way to you. True biblical Christianity involves the repudiation of all dualism. And that's what it meant to our forebears here in Canada, the repudiation of all dualism. What does that mean? Well, in his word, God absolutely forbids every inclination and every effort to break up your life into two parts. One part for yourself and the other part 
for God. That was held by the Dutch Calvinist theologian and statesman, former Prime Minister of the Netherlands, Abraham Kuyper, little more than a century ago. What does that actually mean? What does he mean by this? Well, he means all of life is religious. There is no duality. First mistake we made in this country was to think we can have a neutral space called the state or a neutral education. There is no such thing as a neutral position on anything. Neutral from, the, from neuter means to be neither one thing nor another. You cannot have a social order that is neither one thing nor another. This is what's tearing Europe apart right now. This is why, the, despite being awarded the, a ludicrous Nobel Peace Prize, you've been listening to the news today? Your first responsibility of a Christian. You know Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher in England in the Victorian era, said, I have a Bible under one arm and a newspaper under the other. If you want to be relevant, relate Scripture to what's happening. Well, that's a political Nobel Peace Prize because Europe is coming apart at the seams and they're thinking, how can we, how can we reward this effort at political unification? They can't hold these people together. There's no common bond anymore. There's no common faith. Even money... And economics can't hold Europe together. They thought it could. They thought the euro would do it. The euro, whether it will even survive, is a big question mark. You see, Abraham Kuyper, like many of our Christian forebears believed, and I'm quoting now, that Christians must serve God within the world and not flee into seclusion, as monks and some Anabaptists have done. When Christians obtain positions of civil authority, they must operate in obedience to God since the Lord has ordained their authority. This, Kuiper argued, means that civil government must restrain blasphemy where it directly assumes the character of an affront to the divine majesty. In the UK, we only just struck down the laws against blasphemy in 2008, by the way. The constitution of the state should acknowledge God as supreme ruler and government should set aside its regular activities on a Sunday and protect it as a day of worship. Magistrates should guard themselves as regard themselves as responsible to God in the discharge of their duties. They should punish public attacks upon God as crimes against civil law, which acknowledge God as the source of the state's authority. End quote. Now, that kind of a statement sounds ridiculous to modern Christians. It sounds absurd. And yet those were the beliefs and convictions of a European prime minister a little more than a century ago. Despite uh, the historical proximity of people like Kuiper, he's unknown to many modern Christians today, and they would not be able to identify with the God of whom he speaks and a faith that is integrated into every aspect of life. If you and I want to see a growing vision for public engagement in a place like this fall, when the issues of, think about the, the, the time and the, the cultural moment we live in. Look at what's happening for Christians. Look at what the human rights tribunals are doing in this country at the moment, still. Look at what's happening in our schools. And yet you host an event to speak about how can Christian engage the public sphere and 50 people turn up. What does that tell you, apart from the fact that the speaker may not be very interesting? It tells you that this is not something that registers as significant or important in the minds of most Christians. Maybe it's going to take the gulags before we actually think it's relevant. 
Because we have increasingly done what Kuiper decries and separated life into two parts, that is two levels, we have the sacred, the secular, the personal, the public, the spiritual, the material, one part for ourselves, the other for God, we have this toleration of sin, if you will, in the alleged lower story. This is a sphere that's supposedly outside God's direct authority. And it's become, immorality has become a practical public virtue in this country because of that. So when a provincial judge strikes down uh, the final laws against prostitution in Ontario, people celebrate it as liberation. The result is relativism in the social order, which is a complete denial of Scripture, obviously, because God, by right of creation, the Bible says, legislates for all men. We see this in Isaiah 8.20, to the law and to the testimony. You see, the government of God in Jesus Christ is total. Look at Psalm 110, or Psalm 2, or even Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Let me read you a few verses from Ephesians that will be familiar to you from Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The government, the Bible says, will be upon his shoulders. That's the purpose of God in history through the Lord Jesus Christ. But we have had the, what we can call, I think, the re-Grecianization of the church, especially since the Puritan era, by a severing of the Hebrew or biblical roots of our faith, and this is at the heart of our current disintegration of life. And it's not just the popular relativism that I've mentioned that manifests this, it's also in an escapist mentality. The dualism is seen, yes, in relativism, so that we can say, well, you know, God's kingdom is just a spiritual kingdom. And there's these two stories, the sacred and the secular, and you know, yeah, of course, Christians can live like this for the future, but that doesn't have any relevance to the here and now, to history, to God's purposes in history. And yet Jesus taught us to pray. How? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? On earth, as it is in heaven. That's how we're even taught to pray about God's kingdom work. It's not just the popular relativism then, it's manifest in an escapist mentality. And as this dualistic thinking has revived and gained prominence in the church, confused Christian believers often seek retreat and escape from the world 
from this lower story of existence into this other story of existence rather than seeking the redemption of all things in Jesus Christ, the restitution of all things in Christ. In a very important study of the Jewish roots of the Christian faith, uh, Dr. Marvin R. Wilson points to the important fact of our time and life abandoning tendency that's the result of this Greek philosophy that's returned to the church and our loss of biblical memory. So he says, for example, that the first thing, interestingly enough, in the Bible that God sanctifies in Scripture is not a place, it's not a thing, it's time itself. God sanctifies it. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Wilson says, biblical history is not the story of celebrating space, but the revelation of how people learn to sanctify moments, events, time. And thus the essence of spirituality is for God's people to know the dynamic presence and quickening power of the heavenly Lord at work on earth in their daily lives and activities. In other words, as I often say to my own church, God is in the details. You know, we have that expression, don't we? The devil is in the details. Actually, it's not the devil in the details according to the Bible. It's God who's in the details. Read Leviticus and see how much he was in the detail. The detail of everything. God's interested in all the fine details of our lives. All time, all the earth, all of life is his. The psalmist says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything. It's sustained by his ordination. And so there is no artificial division between the sacred and the secular. We are accustomed to associate spirituality with heavenly mindedness. A kind of modern pietism and quietism concerned with eternal verities of the inner life and the beautific vision. But we don't consider spiritual things like laundry and raising children and education and law and culture-making, and nation-building, and farming, and politics. And yet these were all the things that were considered spiritual by our Christian forebears. This is God's kingdom activity. It's God's kingdom work. Because everything is His. You know, we have that expression, don't we, that we're going to have a spiritual retreat. Of course, we know what we mean by that. Usually we mean we're just going away to recharge our batteries. But it's a totally unbiblical expression. Since when are we told to retreat anywhere in the Bible? We're to advance. Spirituality is to engage in every area of life in terms of God's word and in terms of his purposes. And so for scripture, indeed, the whole tradition of Christendom True spirituality means recognizing the sanctity of all time and God's government over all life and all creation. Yes, we live in a fallen order. It's a broken order. That's true. But Christ is now reconciling all things to himself, says Paul, in heaven and in earth, through his redemptive work and his servant people, his new humanity, the kingdom of the redeemed. That's you, by the way. This was the faith of the biblical writers and our forebears. And it needs restatement and it desperately needs recovery in our time. One of the questions that immediately strikes you when you realize that these things are right there on the surface, right on the surface reading of the Bible, these things are right there. How is it 
that in terms of the Bible's clear opposition to this Greek philosophical duality, the church seems so inclined to espouse it. Think about what Paul, for example, says in Colossians 1 and 3. How is it possible in light of these words? Think about this for a moment. How is it possible to be a dualist when you hear things like this? This is what Paul says. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. Paul says, speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things consist or hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That's not the gospel according to Joe Boot, that's St. Paul. Writing clearly about the office of the Lord Jesus. Now, the scope of that statement is all-encompassing. Everything in heaven and earth, all laws, entities, authorities, powers, whether they be visible ones or invisible ones, all things are created through him and, notice especially, for him. All reality consists by his word and power. And in everything, in every aspect of created reality, Paul says Christ is to be preeminent. Now, the first question for the Christian and the Christian church is, do we even believe that? Because that's what the early church believed. If you want to have any comprehension of how a small group of people, 120 people, the beginning of the book of Acts, within a century were organizing throughout the Roman Empire... Paul tells us in the book of Philippians that even Caesar's household was already invaded by the gospel because he brings greetings from the saints of Caesar's house. And how this tiny band of... I was listening to a lecture by a, a professor from Notre Dame recently, not a Christian, talking about the birth, the emergence of the Christian church and the birth of the church. And it is incomprehensible to him. He just kept saying... It's full of paradoxes. If you were a betting individual, he said, would you have ever bet that this man who was crucified like a common criminal in an out-backwater, nowhere place in the Roman Empire at that time, Judea, should start a movement that would sweep all of pagan Rome before it? He cannot understand it as a historian. He's desperately, he's desperately trying to find in this lecture some kind of rationale that could explain how this was possible without ever a sword being lifted to kill anybody. In fact, quite the contrary, seeing Christian people being torn apart by lions and beasts and so on was one of the reasons he said people were so impressed with these people, how they faced death. If you want to have a comprehension of how the early church spread and grew, 
we can only begin to understand it when we take seriously what Paul says about Jesus in Colossians 1. They believed that. There's no sacred, secular divide here. They didn't say, well, yeah, God's for this bit, but keep him out of everything else. There's no philosophical dialectic here, no sign of autonomous realms in creation. You know, sometimes people cite Colossians 3, 1 through 4 as a defense of dualistic thinking. People cite it often to support disengagement, where Paul says, set your minds not on earthly things, but on things above. It's important to read the context of that passage, though, there in Colossians. Because Paul's challenge to the church there is to Christians is to recognize their status, their delegated authority as those raised with Christ, Christ who sits in the seat of all authority. That's, by the way, the meaning of the right hand of God. You understand that, don't you? That when Jesus sits down at the right hand of God, he's sitting to rule. That's what it means. He sits to rule and reign. He tells Christians then to set their minds on things above, that is Christ, not of the earth. Now this isn't the introduction of Greek dialectics. He's not saying to people, be heavenly minded and of no earthly use. He is not referring to the creation actually at all here. What he's saying to people is, don't now think in terms of the pattern of the world. Don't have the world's earthly mentality. Set your mind on the reality above. What is that? It is the, that your life is hid, says Paul, together with Christ, who is seated in this place of authority. That's where you are, he says. Your regenerate life. You have this high calling now, he tells us. And the immediate challenge he offers to the Christian then in verses 5 through 7 of Colossians 3, is to put away all lawlessness and to obey God. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. This context is very important for understanding the truth of what I've just said. Put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. So Paul is saying, don't live in those anymore. Put to death what's earthly in you. Put off all such thinking and behavior. Put on the new self. Now, if Paul, when he says, put to death what is earthly in you, meant the physical, material, created order, then he was teaching people to commit suicide, wasn't he? So that's clearly not what he meant. You know, set your mind on heavenly things, on the things above, not on earth. So many people read that and they think, that's right. Never mind about God and politics or culture. Think about Jesus. Have a beautific vision. That's the opposite of what Paul is saying. It's clear to set your mind on things above is not a plea to focus on a so-called spiritual realm contemplating heavenly bliss and a higher realm of life and reality, but rather it's a means of self-conscious renewal in knowledge through the work of Christ and his Holy Spirit in our lives that brings us into conformity with God's word. So, we need to remind ourselves of our calling in Christ if we're going to begin to rebuild a vision for public engagement, and we must begin theologically. Because until people 
the Christian church grasp this, we cannot succeed in the public sphere, in the political realm. Because right now the church doesn't even believe this, for the most part, in my experience. For the most part, Christians don't believe the bulk of Christians still in North America today are waiting for Hal Lindsey and, and uh, what's the other guy's name, the Left Behind series? Tim LaHaye and co. to get them out of the world. That's what they're waiting for. The late, great planet Earth. It's all a great big disaster. And the only hope for the church is to escape out of here. That's what many Christians are thinking about. They're not thinking about the reconciliation of all things in Jesus Christ, restitution in Jesus Christ. They're thinking about how to, how to go as quickly as possible, how to leave. Well, that doesn't build a foundation for public engagement, friends. It doesn't. That doesn't lead people to start Christian schools, begin Christian institutions, engage with a public voice in the political sphere. We don't live in an era in which we can be complacent about the authority of God's word, in the meaning of justice, or the kingdom of God, or the calling of the church, the family, or the function of the state. You think about the last hundred years, friends. We have only just emerged from a century that was expected to be the greatest century in the history of man to date. If you read the social commentators of the late 19th century, it's embarrassing. It literally is embarrassing to read their blindness as to what was about to take place. We're supposed to be entering a great golden age where man's science and technology, as he became the custodian of his own evolution, would bring about the age of Aquarius, to put it in occult terms, and where man was going to be saved by his own ingenuity. What did we have instead? We had a century of fascist terror, Marxist murder and madness, totalitarian regimes, slaughter on a scale that made all the previous centuries put together look like Lord of the Flies. That's what we had. As we face, at the beginning of this century, a scientific manipulative state where you and I are seen by the intellectual elite as guinea pigs, they call Canada a social experiment. You're an experiment, did you know that? What do you need to do to, what's the first thing required to conduct any experiment? The first thing required to conduct any experiment is the control of all the variables. Right, if, a scient, if a scientist, or even, look, never mind scientists, when you're a kid and you're doing an experiment in the, the laboratory, the school lab, You've got a Bunsen burner and a beaker. What do you need? You need to be able to control your immediate environment. The experiment is, is, is made useless if it's interfered with and you don't have absolute control of the environment. Well, this is what's taking place in Western culture today with all of these, with the university students, for example, in my own church in Toronto. They're told that there are 7 to 14 gender identities today. They're even trying to work that out. Seven to 14 gender identities. This is, a, this is a revolution. Actually, it's the tail end of a revolution. It's the logical conclusion of a revolution against the Christian faith, against the Bible, and against the family, because they're all linked. 
We have a scientific manipulative state then. We have a resurgent paganism along with that. So never, never in living memory has occultism been so popular. You see psychics everywhere, palm readers, psychic fairs. Down the road from my own church in the city, the United Church has made itself the center of spiritism for the community. We have, along with the resurgent paganism, another brand of vitriolic atheism, where people like Sam Harris are calling for the potential death of all those who have objectionable beliefs. We have a burgeoning, debt-ridden, elitist bureaucracy where nobody knows who's going to pay the bills. Who's going to pay it? Will you even, I mean, forget about it, any sort of state pension in Europe today? We don't, we've got no idea who's going to pay the bill. We don't even have enough children to pay the bills for the future because we've got a demographic winter in North America and most of Europe. In Japan, they're planning to solve the demography problem by building robots to do a lot of public work. I kid you not. This is the world of science fiction we're moving into here. There's been a war on the womb for so long now. and Life is considered cheap. So we have this debt-ridden elitist bureaucracy and we have the growing specter of Islamization. And all of these movements have their own visions of law and culture of what the world should look like and they have a plan for the future and public education is enforcing it in the new pulpits of our age progressivism John Dewey Horace Mann and those who shaped public education from the end of the 19th century on into the 20th you think these ideas that we're facing in our, in our courts today and our political spheres just dropped out of heaven from nowhere? Somebody woke up and thought, hmm, maybe there's 14 genders, not two. No. You see, we are in a time of crisis, but you know, the time of crisis is always a time of opportunity. Salvation and judgment always come together. See, much of our culture is on the brink of death and frankly it deserves to die we should welcome the judgment of God because God's judgment comes with salvation for a faithful people and so we are in, our, in a time of crisis but a time of opportunity for God's church the moment has come when we again as saints of God have to believe, preach and apply to our lives what the scriptures tell us concerning the identity of Jesus Christ. That's the challenge. What does it say about him? He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is, who was and who is to come, the Almighty, the Almighty God. Revelation 1.5, he's the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's not future tense in the Bible. It's present tense, and it's, it's all said in St. John's opening greeting to the churches in Asia. He says he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. King Jesus is now ruler of all the earth and has made us, the Bible says, a kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever. Do you know you're a king and priest unto God? 
I'm not making this up. Revelation chapter 1. Go and read it for yourself tonight before you go to bed. This is who we are as God's people. That is the power of the resurrection. That's what it means. To him be glory and dominion forever. And he saves and sanctifies his race, his new humanity in Christ, and he sends them out into the world for its renewal. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus said. So, go and disciple, discipline, teach all the nations. A kingly priesthood, you see, was given to Adam, and with this I close in the Garden of Eden kingly priesthood and it was lost by sin and rebellion against God it has been re-established in and through Jesus Christ who is called the second Adam and that is why historically evangelicals have always emphasized vocation the apostle Peter says to us in 1 Peter 2 9 you are a chosen race a royal priesthood royal a kingly priesthood a holy nation Do you believe that? You see, friends, this is where politics starts. The polis. The polis was just the city-state. We get this from the Greek and Roman world. And you know the uh, word for church in the New Testament in the Greek, ekklesia, ek, out of, klesia, means called out once. It was used in Hellenic politics. And it simply meant the called out people in terms of the public affairs of the city-state. Called out in terms of public affairs. That's exactly what the church of God is. The Bible says we are his ambassadors. We are called out as a people, God's kingdom people, in terms of the public affairs of the kingdom of God. And as a kingly priesthood, we are called to work and serve under the scepter of our great high priest, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and apply the crown rights of Christ the King in each area of life. That's what the Puritans said. To apply the crown rights of King Jesus everywhere. Now, this is not some vague theological idealism. You may be thinking, this sounds all very grand, but... It's idealistic. It's actually the concrete task of God's people in history. You see, if, we, if Christ is the second Adam and we are a kingly priesthood, we tend God's garden when we make known the gospel and uphold his law and serve his righteousness and bear his image, not just in our evangelism and our personal witness, but in all socio-political and cultural engagement. For many of our Christian forebears, this included nation-building. And the Jewish scholar David Klinghoffer says this, he notes that, and I'm quoting, John Calvin took a much more Jewish view of the Hebrew Bible, granting high regard to the legal observance of the Old Testament precepts, even apart from the Ten Commandments. It was Calvinist Protestants, the Puritans, who gave the initial religious inspiration to what became the founding of the United States, the most philo-Semitic country the world has ever known. This reproachment of Judaism and Christianity found its most remarkable expression in American law, which from the 17th century on drew inspiration not only from the Ten Commandments, but from the entire Hebrew Bible. The earliest legal codes of colonial Massachusetts and Connecticut were based explicitly on the Pentateuch's legislative system, 
American law similarly assumes that right and wrong are a matter of objective reality. The Ten Commandments are at the foundation of our moral and legal culture. It's for this good reason that Moses carrying the two tablets of the Decalogue is carved on the wall of the U.S. Supreme Court. The United States has, a long, has long regarded itself as the continuation of the history of ancient Israel, an extension of the Jewish church, as the pilgrims put it in 1620, end quote. And actually, I argue in my new book, The Mission of God, coming out at the beginning of the new year, that Canada has an even stronger claim to being a Christian nation uh, than the United States does. God has created the world, brothers and sisters, not merely as an environment for his creatures. He's also created it as his sanctuary, the Bible says, his resting place where he is enthroned. Go and read Psalm 132, verses 13 through 14. It's God's sanctuary. We are to work and take care of all that God has made, maintaining the sanctity of his sanctuary. You know, when Moses built the tabernacle, the tabernacle was a reflection of Eden. You look at the details of the tabernacle, it was made to reflect Eden, the original creation, as well as the cosmic temple in heaven, where human beings ruled and served as kings and priests. And so the task laid upon this new people, the redeemed priesthood in Jesus Christ, is to extend God's garden, to increase, to fill, subdue and rule, bearing and applying God's image in all things. Land is very important in the Bible. The first land grant in the Bible was Eden, given to our first parents. It was forfeited through sin and rebellion against God. What was the second land grant? The second land grant was promised to Abraham was Canaan. And the Jews forfeited it through their rebellion and disobedience and were expelled from it. The third land grant is given in Jesus Christ to his chosen race, and the Bible tells us it's the whole earth. Romans 4.13, the whole cosmos. The Beatitude, Jesus says, the meek shall inherit the earth. In all this, God has promised his presence with us as we minister to the world and order all things in terms of his purposes. This is what St. Paul considered his duty, his own evangelistic mission. He calls it in Romans 1.5 and 16.26, his priestly duty to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations. Our calling as a people then, friends, is not to keep the covenant blessings for ourselves and go to heaven. For a start, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, into the earth. Instead, it's to spread God's glory to the nations. Missiologist Christopher Wright has observed, he says, the purpose for which this covenant with Israel existed was part of God's long-term mission to bring blessing to all the nations and all creation. Ultimately, God's presence among his people must point to the blessing of his presence in all the earth. The presence of God in Israel's tabernacle and temple looked back toward his presence in Eden and forward to his ultimate presence among all nations in a renewed creation. We can win back our age. If the early church can transform all of pagan Rome, we can win back our age by faithfulness and applying God to all aspects of life. If we will say with the early church, Jesus Christ is Lord, and really believe it, and really mean it. The culture is collapsing around us, 
humanism, friends, and the paganism of our age is doomed. It is self-destructing. But by faithfulness, by rebuilding this theological vision for public engagement, we can be ready to step into the chaos. This is already happening in Africa. If you read about what the Christian church is doing in Africa, providing health, welfare, and education in collapsing states, this is what needs to be done here. We need to be ready. We need to have hope. We may be a small group of people. It may seem like a tiny, insignificant minority, but we should be reminded that one person with God is a majority. The early church was small, and God changed the face of the planet through those people. Are we so faithless that we cannot believe that God could not change Canada to a faithful people in our own time? May God, by his grace, give us the strength and the fortitude to be obedient. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.